you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's Bad With Money with Gabby Done Hello and welcome to Bad With Money A show about finances and feelings Where we don't talk down to you I'm Gabby Dunn, I'm your host, and this week we have a very fun one. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Lauren Anastasio of Stash all about Confessions of a Shopaholic, the 2009 romantic comedy starring Isla Fisher and Hugh Dancy. The reason I picked this is because we've talked a bit about addiction and quote-unquote shopaholism on the show before. Uh, in an episode from a while back, maybe season two of this show. And I wanted to dive again into the mental health aspect of shopping and of spending money. This movie, it had a tough go of it when it first came out. And I know there were a lot of rewrites and a lot of reshoots in order to make it more palatable at the time. We're going to get into that because luxury was starting to be seen as a negative on the heels of the 2008 recession. But this movie really delves into the psyche of why someone would spend so much money and get into credit card debt over shopping. And it fluctuates back and forth between taking it seriously and being so wholeheartedly (laughs) clueless. So if you enjoyed this movie when you were younger, if you still enjoy it now, you're going to love this interview. And you don't have to have seen the film because we are talking all about debt, debt collecting, the realities of giving money advice from a place of not having your own shit together, hello, my life story, and also the mental health aspect of spending. This movie has some really poignant lines about that, even amongst, again, some just devastatingly not on point takeaways. (laughs) It's similar to the other breakdowns and takedowns we've done where it's like you're almost getting to the point and then you come away with the wrong conclusion. So here we go. Here's me and Lauren talking about confessions of a shopaholic. Hello. Can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? Yes, my pleasure. My name is Lauren Anastasio. I'm a certified financial planner and the director of financial advice at Stash, which is an investing, banking, and education platform. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am a longtime fan of the podcast. Oh, I love when we have longtime fans on because then I don't have to explain the radical politics behind the show. (laughs) I appreciate you coming in hot. So what is what does Stash do? Like, what do you do there? Stash is a registered investment advisor. So that means as an organization, we're fiduciaries. Mm-hmm. So we offer our subscribers the ability to build wealth through products and educational resources. As the director of financial advice, it's my job to ensure that we're providing objective education and guidance to help our users Uh, do that in a very thoughtful and objective way. So you're essentially the girl in the green scarf. (laughs) (laughs) So ironically, that is one of the reasons why this story resonated with me. I can assure you that I never thought that I would be in the position to be providing 
uh, financial expertise. It's just the way that my career happened to go. Uh, but it is something that I'm very passionate about and one of a, a couple of uh, similarities between myself and uh, our, our favorite character today. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about the movie Confessions of a Shopaholic, but I also like to talk about the context in which uh, the film came out and also the concept of shopaholic because she talks often about clothing being an investment or the things that she's buying being investments. So Confessions of a Shopaholic came out in 2009. It stars Isla Fisher. And I was doing some research and I just like to always start off with sort of like what's going on in the culture while this is happening. This comes out in 2009. In terms of films, it was probably shot 2008-ish. And then um, it's based on a book that I think came out about 10 years before. I think in 2000. Yeah. yeah, it took a while for the book to become it's a series of books and it took a while for the book to become a film. And during that time, people's relationship to luxury changed immensely. So I found uh, this article from Newsweek from 2008 called Luxury Shame, Why Even the Very Rich Are Cutting Back on Conspicuous Consumption by a reporter named Johnny L. Roberts. And um, this is part of what it says. This new frugality is also taking the gleam off Tinseltown. Would I go out and buy something showy? Not at a time like this, says one of Hollywood's richest moguls. It would be like bragging. At Disney, top film marketers reportedly are agonizing over the planned Valentine's Day release of Confessions of a Shopaholic. They reportedly are considering reworking the ending of the film to address today's harsh economic realities. So then there's also these other articles, too, that come out around the same time. The movie gets kind of raked over the coals. Uh, when I posted about the film, some fans who are my age, maybe a little younger, talked about how they used to love this movie when they were, you know, in middle school. Um, so I don't know that it had any impact on like the rom-com lovers, you know, ability to enjoy it. But it, it, there was so much made of it at the time for a film that I don't know that anyone talks about now. In the L.A. Times in 2009, Shopaholic Crashes into Real Recession by Claudia Eller. Walt Disney Co.'s upcoming comedy, Confessions of a Shopaholic, is a movie about a young woman whose compulsive shopping habits plunges her into debt and financial crisis. Talk about timing. The movie, which debuts over Valentine's Day weekend, is opening at a time when consumers are drowning in credit card debt and suffering through what may be the worst recession since the Great Depression. And then the producer of the film, Jerry Bruckheimer, in this article to make it seem as though uh, it's actually great that the movie is coming out during the recession um, because the project had been in development for eight years and uh, the world looked a lot different when it was given the green light 12 months ago. And he tries to be like, this is actually a, a really great story of a young woman who has a problem and, and she turns her life around and it's a lesson that everyone can learn, which is kind of this funny thing because... I think it would have initially been positioned as aspirational. And as the movie was coming out, the marketing shifted entirely into uh, uh, actually this is bad and she has to learn a lesson. So I don't know. What were you what was your uh, vibe or situation like in 2008, 2009? So I was in graduate school at the time and I probably was anxiously awaiting the film because I, I do remember reading the book as a preteen and kind oh. of like falling in love with this chiclet series where it was without a doubt set up to be aspirational lifestyle. And 
I do think, thankfully, the environment was a bit different by the time the film was released and perhaps mitigated the damage that it could have done to young, impressionable viewers. Oh, interesting. However, the whole point, you know, what you just read about um, the producer's angle and how, you know, we're teaching a lesson. Like, I'd argue that there was no lesson learned here. None, zero. Um, whatsoever, yeah, whatsoever. Um, I mean, I suppose in one tiny little aspect of what the film could do well or had theoretically done well was they did show some ramifications of the behavior more so than I think other similar characters that we've seen in media. Uh, however, the bigger problem or one of my main concerns in rewatching this is really just addressing the fact that this isn't some like fun, silly 20 something who just doesn't know what's going on. She clearly has a mental illness and that's not being addressed in the slightest. If we were talking about like drugs or alcohol addiction instead of shopping, this would have been a very different movie. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's played, um, as, as very comical, but then I can see, like, I can see where maybe later on, and I know they did redo the ending. I can see where there was panic all of a sudden, like they shot one movie and then I can see where they went. Oh no. Oh no. And there's a lot of stuff actually that stuck out to me in that. I don't think these people know what things cost. And so I wonder (sighs) if they went back and sort of made things less expensive than they actually would be, which we'll get into when we start going through the film. But like, for instance, you know, they give her $16,000 in credit card debt. That's one of the big numbers they throw out. To me, at that time, during the recession, people had debt in the hundreds of thousands. People had uh, student loans. People had medical debt. People lost, you know, their savings. The the number 16,000, I know it's it's a lot, but to me it rang as like that's so doable. Like it did not ring as desperate or as um crazy a, a number as, you know, it's played as in the film. I also think maybe they did that to seem like more relatable. Similarly, they have her buying these luxury items and I believe at one point her friend says $900 on these shoes or whatever. Um, or $900 total at Barney's or something, right? And it's like meant to imply that she's bought a lot of things. $900 is one pair of shoes at Barney's. I agree. And there are mentions of fashion labels throughout the the film. And I, I agree that the reality doesn't coincide with the problem that they um, added up to be. I do think that number was probably a bit modest in order to be a little bit more relatable to the average viewer, a number that, you know, sounds high enough to be stressful, but without a doubt wasn't realistic. But that's just sort of a drop in the bucket in regards to what was actually realistic about the the movie. And what people at the time and what people at the time watching might have as debt. I can imagine someone watching this with, you know, fifty thousand dollars in medical debt that w- through no fault of their own and going this bitch got has sixteen thousand dollars in debt to a, a department sh- store who gives a shit you know what right. i mean like i like luxury brands i go between i go through periods where i really like luxury brands and then uh, sometimes i i 
regret it. I have bipolar disorder, so we can get into the mental illness aspect of it. And in my book, I talk immensely about how much I would spend while manic. And at one point, some in the last two years, I bought uh, $2,000 boots from Gucci during a manic episode. And that's one pair of boots. So I know that these brands, and I'm sure 10 years ago, maybe it was different, but I know that you can, if you buy five things at Gucci, that's $16,000 right there. So I was like, these numbers don't really add up to to what it actually would cost to have this disorder. <laughs> There's a review from 2009 uh, by Mary Poles that's in Time Magazine that says, Confessions of a Shopaholic, a Relic of an Economy Past. In the beginning, she, you know, they give her this sort of origin story where her her mom is very stingy. She's laughed at by by other kids, which I think is relatable to a lot of uh, viewers. And then she starts to understand what credit cards are. And she has a quote, a man will never love you or treat you as well as a store. And then she kind of has this orgasmic experience. How do you feel about that quote? Uh, that one had stood out to me. And I, I think in general, how she describes being in a store. And uh, she actually says, no one will ever love you like a store loves you. And yeah. how being present like in front of new merchandise awakens a lust in you for things that you didn't know that you need. Uh, and I do think for some people, this was probably incredibly relatable, but it it starts to indicate that that this is more than just, you know, a certain level of materialism. There's a, a very significant emotional reaction to spending that this individual is having. Um, so I, I do think it enters nicely at the beginning of the movie and kind of sets the stage that this individual is coping with something beyond perhaps like an aspirational lifestyle. Uh, and it does get a little bit more more serious as as the film goes on. You know, that's kind of funny. We run into two types of people here on the show. One is like, they they ha- they didn't grow up with a lot, so they're very terrified and they don't spend anything now. Or they didn't grow up with a lot, so they're like, fuck you, I'm buying whatever yeah. I want. Yeah. And she seems to have a little bit of that element of like, I'm I'm so scared of turning out like my parents that I need to just buy whatever, you know, will ma- and I have that too. I go into the store and I buy something and then I come out and I go, I don't even know who that person was who didn't own this thing. I'm total I'm different now. I have the green scarf. I'm I'm the person with the green scarf now. So I my my problems that I had in the past, who did that belong to? I don't even know. It's not me. Yeah, I think uh, this resonates undoubtedly with people who are experiencing the idea of revenge spending. So this became a really popular uh, topic as we emerged from the pandemic. And folks who hadn't had the opportunity to really like treat themselves or take a vacation, but you know, like go to a, a store or treat them, you know, treat themselves to, mm-hmm. to something. And then it was kind of like all of this pent up energy um, mm-hmm. and coming out in very extreme ways where folks are spending money that um, they wouldn't have dreamed of otherwise, but sort of in an entitlement. Yeah. Like I deserve this. I went through hell. Exactly. And, and so, you know, speaking to those folks who, who grew up and felt deprived or like they didn't have what they would have wanted, or it was difficult to watch like those other girls shopping in the store and having whatever was new and 
um, desirable. I agree. Yeah. What we're talking about is uh, Rebecca Bloomwood. She's our protagonist. She's a journalist. I love a good I love a good journalist lady protagonist in a, <laughs> in a romantic comedy. She wants to work for Alette magazine, which is basically Vogue. Her indication that this would be an investment, that clothes would be an investment. Um, what do you think about that as an investment advisor? <laughs> I do think that there is some reality to investing in things that make you feel good, then it can be viewed as like a personal investment. Whether or not we're going to build wealth, uh, acquiring a wardrobe, I don't I don't think that there's any debate that that probably isn't the case. It's sort of just like finding your values and spending your money on the things that you value. That's really lovely. <laughs> That's a very diplomatic <laughs> answer. I mean, I, I definitely, I, I wear the boots that I bought, but I feel so much guilt and I definitely had had to like pay them off right away. And I and it took, you know, it was like stress and it took a lot of like, okay, now I have to figure out how I'm going to, you know, pay back these boots that I bought while manic. And it also causes me to wear them all the time in every situation because I'm like, I got to get my money's worth in some capacity. (sighs) You're right. There are some people who would argue like, well, vintage stuff and like you're able to, you know, keep these pieces for a long time. And but a thing that happens here where it takes a long time for her to realize she could sell these pieces like a really long time. Like we I I wrote down I'm tracking and like in my notes, like it takes till like the third act for her to realize that she could get rid of these things. Now, my generous read on that is that she feels an emotional attachment to them. So I think you hit the nail on the head. Again, we're, we're bringing this back to it's not simply a shopping problem. It's not simply I got myself into a little bit of credit card debt problem. She um, has an emotional attachment to these physical possessions, uh, but she can't even follow through with just getting rid of a bag of clothes. And she finds a way to hide it all and and keep everything. So I don't know that it's a matter of like, it didn't occur to her that she could sell it as much as she just wasn't capable of parting with it. And I do also, I think in 2009, it was a little bit harder to find profitable ways to repurpose your, your belongings than it is now. Like I'm a huge fan of Poshmark. I, I've used it um, right. to declutter my my wardrobe over the years, but those types of apps um, didn't didn't exist. Honestly, we we covered hashtag Girlboss, uh, the memoir of Sofia Moroso on this show, which that book nearly uh, made me lose my <laughs> mind. In the world of Confessions of a Shopaholic, Sofia Moroso is just now starting Nasty Gal, so there is just there's just starting to become. Uh, a, a, a eBay world, eBay seller world that people know about, that the average person knows about, not just the the people who are insular on eBay. They're just starting to become more mainstream in terms of selling things on eBay, like vintage clothes, like expensive clothes. Um, that's just starting to become a thing. So she might, you're right, she might not know about it. There is a thrift store that does buy things that she could sell to, which is so funny to watch the different ways that thrift stores are viewed. Back then, it was like, you're disgusting. 
And which is like so classist. And it's like so funny how something becomes like all of a sudden cool with like a certain subset of white person. And then suddenly like everyone's like, I thrifted it. I thrifted it. I repurposed it. Um, And that's probably like the YouTube era is starting to happen where people are like doing hauls and like showing what they've they've bought and everything. So all of this is happening at the same time within the world of this um, of this woman, Rebecca Bloomwood. But she might not entirely know that that's the situation now. So then she meets Hugh Dancy, who is just so charming in this role. This is what you were talking about, where they need to show it as sort of comparable to drugs and alcohol, where she needs $20 uh, for this scarf and she wants this green scarf and all her cards are getting declined. And then uh, she tries to almost buy, she tries to buy all the hot dogs, which is so funny because that actually the very same thing happens in uh, the pilot of 30 rock, just an FYI in the pilot of 30 rock. Liz, but she does it. Yeah. She actually stand. goes through. I don't know what came first, but anyway, so then Hugh Dancy gives her $20. So that, makes her look like a quote-unquote junkie. It, she has a problem. It, it shows that. And my stress level, because she's getting, she's running to a, a her dream job interview and she's running late because she wants this scarf. And my, uh, like, my stress level was at uh, an 11. Then Hugh Dancy says, cost and worth are very different things. So what do you think of that? I think that was one of, like, the few kind of like more thoughtful lines in the film. And I absolutely agree with that messaging. I was really disappointed that it didn't kind of come back as a recurring theme. I don't want to spoil things that happen later in the movie, but there is one point where she is at a consignment shop and choosing between two items with different price tags on them that mean very different things to her. And she really doesn't make that connection. She doesn't carry that lesson. You know, he gives her this piece of advice on the street um, after he effectively pays $23 for his hot dog. And, you know, three quarters of the way through the movie, she still hasn't figured that out yet. A lot of the things that we have gotten used to as a society with technology over the last decade or so, you know, the idea of leveraging um, DoorDash or Instacart or, you know, what is the cost that you're paying for this service versus what it's actually worth to you from a time perspective? Um, one thing that Instacart does that I think is actually incredibly clever is when you place an order, it'll tell you how many hours you've quote unquote saved. And when you think about what it's worth to you as an individual to not have to leave the house, potentially, you know, like worry about like a child care or sit in traffic, but the stress of, and especially like, you know, during, during COVID, what is the stress of walking Uh into a crowded store and waiting in line with other people who aren't wearing masks? You know, what is it worth to you? to have this service like bring groceries to your door. It's worth the person working for Instacart's life actually. <laughs> there there's no doubt, but it, there's there's no that it's an it's a great point, but there's cost and worth on on both yeah. ends, right? So for all people involved right. in the process, you know, from a objective financial standpoint, you could argue like why should you be paying more for something than, you know, if you just go and get it yourself? Well, at the end of the day, there is 
the cost that you pay for something and there's like the worth it, that it has to you. In many cases, yeah. you know, the examples that we give about Instacart and in this film where uh, Luke's character is trying to get back to the office, he doesn't want to be disrupted by uh, waiting for his hot dog. His time is what is worthwhile to him. So that extra 20 that he hands over to Rebecca in that moment uh, is exemplary of the the worth um, for him. So it it really is very important when you're trying to weigh those two to understand that one is a little bit more objective and the other is very personal and subjective. Yes. And there's a, a great book called Your Money or Your yes. Life by Vicki Robin. It's like how much is your time she has you break down like how much your time is worth in money and then it helps you understand what you want to spend on or buy based on uh you know cost versus worth So she gets to the Hearst building. I've actually been there. I recognized it. I have been to the Hearst building. Uh and then she sees that someone else wearing Louboutins, uh, Alicia Billington, has gotten the Alette job. Then a very nice gay man, I assume, working at the front, tells her that there's a money magazine, Successful Savings, that is looking for a writer and that she should go do it. Hugh Dancy turns out, of course, because it's a rom-com, is actually Luke Brandon, the guy who's hiring for Successful Savings. She is completely manic in the interview in a way that I as a I worked as a journalist for years. I could never behave like that. So then she has no she has the debt collectors calling. So what what do you know about debt collectors and the way that they behave? This is absolutely not how debt collection works. Um and I Tell me <laughs> so more. I, I will not speak on, on behalf or in defense of a debt collector or an agency, but this is like an extremely heavily regulated industry with a lot of limitations as to the level of harassment that could actually transpire. So the way that Derek Smith, who is this infamous uh, debt collector in the film, who's chasing her down. Uh, behaves would only be described as harassment uh, and is more in line with what you might expect from like a loan shark than someone who is working for a debt collection company on behalf of a prior you know, credit card issuer. There was a really great John Oliver last week tonight segment about how debt collectors can act sort of wild. Like they can like show up to your work. They can do kind of similar. I think maybe now it's more regulated, but they kind of can do some really. Yeah. So that type of behavior is incredibly rare and really not something that an individual would kind of chase down with a passion. The way mo- most like debt collection companies work is there, there's someone that's in a contact center who's randomly being assigned to uh, a name that has a past due balance and automatically calling them. I assure you that most of the time they're not like memorizing people. One thing that is real uh, that debt collectors can do is what's called skip trace which is where they can actually find your friends and family members and reach out to them to try and get a hold of you or inform other people about your 
uh, debt in order to try and get a hold of you. Uh, I don't know what the the limitations are, but it's a highly practiced uh, method, especially among student loan servicers. That's awful. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. So that is an example of like really, I would say like inhumane (laughs) practices. Uh, But what we saw in the film is certainly not accurate and not indicative of what someone would experience in the event that they had uh, like five figures of credit card debt. And I think it's also sending the wrong message to where, you know, she has this item that goes to collections and she's getting chased down by a debt collector. But yet, at no point is it addressed that she can't continue to get credit. So we still see her using credit cards this whole time, which is just crazy. Like these cards would have been shut down long ago, she wouldn't be able to take out more debt. Um, So there there are definitely some pretty significant um, plot holes in terms of how the industry actually works. So her, she goes to her friend, Kristen Ritter, who is an actress I adore. Bad. She's living in her friend's parents' apartment. So that's that's Kristen Ritter's parents' apartment. She doesn't want to she, – she skips rent right. often. Um, and then – so they decide they're going to go through her bills and go through everything. And I relate to this, and I actually have given this advice – that you need to go through all of your paperwork and that and it is that painful. Like, I don't think you could drink that much tequila and do it. But I took three days to go through all of my accounts when I was first getting started. And I laid on the on the. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? First, the bad news. Mint is shutting down. Now, good news. There's a better alternative. Monarch Money. Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. That's right. I use Mint and now I'm using Monarch Money. It is very stressful, confusing, and time-consuming to manage my finances. I've tried other finance apps. They don't really work. Like, you know, I was very committed to Mint, and then I was uh, deeply sad when Mint went away. But now, I have tried Monarch. It's so easy to use with powerful features, collaboration tools, intuitive design, personalization, constant product improvements. I mean, I really value a company that is proactively looking at how to make finances easier. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, also has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Can you imagine being able to have a budget app with your partner? That is wild. You can see all your finances, you can collaborate on your budget, you can get insights on your cash flow and reoccurring transactions. It's a very easy way to manage a household's finances. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data for Mint and keep all your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budget app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. We will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y slash bad money for your extended 30-day free trial. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. 
Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these numbers. 37,025 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. If you have all the information about your business in one place, you can make way better decisions. And this is an unprecedented offer, meaning this is totally worth your time. As someone who runs a business, having all of this together in order to close my books, that would be invaluable. It's a time saver. It's literally the biggest time saver. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. That's netsuite.com slash badwithmoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because when I'm looking to work with someone, I really need to be able to get someone fast. My job works very fast. Podcasts work very fast. And I've actually been looking for an assistant and I don't need to waste time sorting through matches without getting the highest quality person, right? When I'm looking to hire someone, whether that's a grant writer or a musician or something like that, it's very overwhelming because you get a lot of messages, but you're not able to like parse through yourself which ones are actually worth looking at. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash badwithmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash badwithmoney right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash badwithmoney terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. 
floor and like wanted to throw up through most of it. So this actually, to me, rang pretty true. Yeah. So um, I won't get too deep into it because it would probably warrant like an entirely other episode about money personalities and kind of the (laughs) psychological trauma that we experience as children that contribute to the kind of money scripts that we have as adults. Um, But one very common one uh, is what's called money avoidance. And this is the perfect example of that. Um, Susie, uh, Kristen Ritter's character, who's our Becky's friend and roommate, reminds her that she hides her credit card bills under under her bed, I think. Folks who yes. ignore bills when they come in the mail or, or want to leave them unopened or just have a really hard time thinking about it in general. Actually, uh, I always consider my partner to be money avoidant. Um, because he is the type of person that will wait until the day that a bill is due and then like pay it online right before midnight, just because it, it brings him like, you know, financial stress or anxiety to think about it. I'm exactly the opposite. Like I'll pay something immediately as soon as the bill comes. So that it's not a matter of being like right or wrong, but from a personality standpoint, they're I don't know, I would say a pretty significant portion of the population is probably more comfortable avoiding the realities of money in their life, good or bad, than than handling it in any other way. Yes, absolutely. And this is where we get the $16,000 number. Could Susie pay this money off? I think she says something about her parents. Um, so I don't know that she ever offers to pay, like to get rid of her debt, but she does. I don't want to say it's slightly, it is a bit enabling when she like tears up the rent check and basically makes the decision to say like, yes. you don't have to pay your rent because you're my friend and you live with me and this is my parents' apartment. It's very clear that she's coming from an incredibly privileged background. Um, but there's not a ton of depth to that character. We don't actually really know anything about like what she does for a living and, um, you know, like Mm -hmm. what her circumstances are. It's interesting because she's, she acts like she doesn't have these problems and she's coming at it from a place of like, I, I'm keeping this a secret and I'm going to give this advice that I myself am not going to take. And I'm going to keep it a secret that I have debt and all these things. Whereas like when I started bad with money, I was like, I'm screwed up. Everything is in the shitter. I don't know what I'm doing. I think what she's doing is really important. I think it's like really interesting. Um, and I would like wholeheartedly back this this character. But I also think it's so unfortunate that it's played in the film as though she needs to keep her own history and her own problems like secret while she's doing it because it's it's shown as like nobody would take her advice seriously or nobody would listen to her. Whereas like, Now I feel like what benefits people is honesty and transparency and what benefits people from money media more so than someone speaking from the top of a hill being like, I know better than you is somebody who's like, I'm actively clawing my way out of this and you can watch me do that. And like that would be, you know, like I, I, I think that this movie touches on like the way the the in the ways in which like if she had done that from the jump maybe it would have been she could have avoided a lot of stuff and people would have felt more seen i think that's an excellent point and i i'm curious like what almost like a sequel to the movie would have looked like because we do get to a point later in the film mm-hmm. where after she's she's been on a tv show she's without giving anything away she's told that her story has resonated with many people And I think, uh, you know, like I personally will always say, you know, 
my personal experience with money is without a doubt the most valued asset that I have as an advisor. But at the end of the day, the reason that I am so able to like confidently point people in the right direction and provide advice is because I've lived through it. I I agree with you. We don't want to dismiss that, but I will acknowledge that if you're in a position where you're basically being hired on what you might think are, are, are false pretenses and you're in a world that is extremely intimidating and without a doubt, the world of finance to most people is is very intimidating. There's a part where Hugh Dancy, you know, pushes her to ask hard questions. And he talks about this. This all felt so like exactly what bad with money is. He talks about an endemic lack of public understanding. And he says, I want you to tell the truth in a way Maisie can understand. And Maisie's like the average woman. I I could go into so much about the the stuff behind um, running a magazine and how you know, financial journalism is screwed up by everybody trying to keep uh, the people at the big banks and the big companies uh, speaking right. to them or on their good side. This is all sort of like still still the situation. This came, movie came out in 2009 and this is like still the way that money media operates today. I would argue there's more successful savings type media than there is something like my show or stash or you know what I mean? Like it's still overrun by this kind of like exclusionary, let's use language nobody understands. I think despite uh, some efforts to be a little bit more accessible, um, there are just more players than there were, you know, a little over a decade ago, but their behavior hasn't really changed. There is a space where people are looking for the truth. They're looking for, for real answers, real um, yeah. people's experiences. And uh, one of the places we go to for that is social media. And unfortunately, there is just as much bad, if not more so, um, or things that are potentially damaging in, on social media that, as there are kind of like these real world people telling the truth um, and trying to seek out like unbiased and objective answers on on behalf of the greater good. You know, in this situation, right, the thing is you don't know who you're taking advice from. It's the girl in the green scarf, which she hides her name because she doesn't want the creditors to come after her, know where she lives or know where she's working. She doesn't go by her real name uh, because she's hiding, you know, her own history of debt. And I don't know. It's like this whole thing, you know, being like, oh, she has to hide. She's a hypocrite and all that stuff. It's it is as much as there is more money media that is judgy. There is a lot more pushback now, I think, because of social media of no, we we want to hear from the person who didn't grow up with an inheritance, who isn't going to tell you that if you just take $10,000 a year and put it in a savings account, like you just need to have a, an emergency fund with three to six months of of your money as if that's something people can just, oh, you, you know right. what? I suppose that I do just have those extra thousands of dollars <laughs> lying around. But to be fair, she is not taking her own advice, which for me, a big, a big thing was, as I learned, I had to take my own advice, even if it was incredibly painful. Um, I also have a quote from Susie that says, Have you ever considered taking your own advice? You're advising people about debt and you're up to your eyeballs in it. Now, let's get into Shopaholics Anonymous. There's this um, expectation that this character um, is able to so quickly like 
cripple the will of the other people present, which is unbelievably frustrating mm-hmm. that, you know, her character is there. And again, what, what, how is it actually beneficial to her? Well, it is really important to um, address the truth and kind of like your own reality and be able to, to share that. Um, what does it not do? It, it all circles back to the really horrible advice that came out of that Ed Helms video where it's just like, just cut up the credit cards. That'll solve your problem. Or, you know, like just tell yourself that you can walk by the store window. Um, that's not fixing anything. I did like, I did like that it was a cross section of people. I did like that it was like a very diverse group. To be fair, John Sally's there. He's, uh, there's a an uh, another um, Asian man who's there, and like it, it does uh, have a an interesting cross section yeah. that isn't just like women be shopping. So that's kind of cool, but yeah, it is. Also, they play it for what you're talking about is when she's able to get these people to do that. Like they're playing it for laughs, one hundred percent. The the and this is also dark. Amy Winehouse's yeah, rehab is playing over. The scene where she cuts her credit card out of ice and where the leader of the group relapses because of her. So in 2009, Amy Winehouse was in the tabloids as a joke. You know, it's kind of this very interesting moment, frozen (laughs) moment in time, pun intended, I guess, because she's cutting her credit card out of ice, frozen in time moment where mental health and addiction were not yet necessarily treated the way they are now. It's like a perfect little cross-section movie music moment. The fact that we genuinely weren't there at the time, but also a little bit of completely tone-deaf Hollywood. It's like almost like a masterclass, that one little part. (laughs) And then there's a new mean uh, leader of the Shopaholics group, yeah. um, played by Wendy Malick, who I absolutely adore. Uh, and this is the what you were talking about, where she has to bring uh, her the dress that she's going to wear on TV to talk about her uh, column, and uh, the dress that Susie is having her wear, which is ostensibly ugly for uh, her bridesmaid's dress. And she has to bring, she's forced to bring them to the consignment shop and she has to choose between which is more important. They literally ask her which is more important. There is one disabled person (sighs) in the entire movie. She is a bitch. Um, And so this is this really hard situation where I think she chooses, she ends up leaving the, um, the bridesmaid's dress. They put two different prices two different costs on these dresses. The one that is from Barney's that she wants to wear on television and the one that is her her bridesmaid's dress for her best friend's wedding. Doesn't figure it out. She makes arguably the wrong choice or not arguably. (laughs) Um, She undoubtedly the wrong choice. Uh, And she has the Barney's dress to go on on TV and, um, we see the fate of the bridesmaid's dress a little bit later. So her parents learn she's the girl in the green scarf. And then there's so many lines that I was like, this is me. Like, there's a quote that's like, so much financial journalism is really boring. There's a part mm-hmm. that's like, it's not accessible, but it's ordinary people that have the most money and savings. And then they sort of hammer home that trust is the most valuable commodity in America. Uh, and so, like, these are all like you could you could use all of these things as jumping off points for this show, for your work. Like, it, it's just um, it's interesting that this was over 10 years ago 
and still like I, I think we've gotten a little better but still that yeah that money media is just inaccessible and that ordinary people are the ones who who are the ones who need this financial advice that isn't going to be like invest in million dollar real estate and then sit back and coast yeah i i think that they're there's still an abundance of absolutely like terrible financial advice. And, you know, we touched on this a little bit talking about social media. Uh, But I think, you know, unfortunately we don't get to see kind of what happens after the end of this movie, but I would love to believe that with the start of the new magazine and um, assuming Rebecca has some reformed ways, which she talks about a little bit in the last scene, uh, that all of these things do add up the sort of like um, honesty, like an integrity that comes with her, you know, future journalism and uh, the importance of actually being able to talk to someone who doesn't understand the jargon um, or feels that understanding finance is inaccessible. So she I never wrote, I personally don't have debt. It's just the assumption. So really, whose fault is it really? The, the scene, so she she's on television. She's on television with Luke. That's where Derek Smith finds her in the studio of a live recording of some morning show. Um, Derek Smith is in the audience and basically rattling off her personal information to uh, the tri-state area, if not the entire country. And uh, in the scene immediately following where it's kind of like the reckoning happens and her debt has been exposed, um, it's like a very frustrating scene where she's being chastised by Luke, but I do think um, contains some of like the most powerful lines of the movie that reinforce like what a a serious addiction she has is and um the fact that she shouldn't be like chastised for making like silly or irresponsible decisions she actually says when he asks her like why do you shop like what a ridiculous question um and she says when i shop the world gets better and then it's not anymore. And so I need to do it again. This is a very, like, this person needs to be listened to. And you need to, like, help them get help, professional help. Not just say, like, oh, you you silly, frivolous young lady. How could you make such a, such a silly mistake? Let's just sell off all your stuff. We'll pay off the debt. And then everything is fixed. <laughs> um, so that it without a doubt is incredibly frustrating, but I think is possibly one of the most honest things that is said in the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, so anyway, she gets Suze's bridesmaids dress back and Luke's job is on the line and he leaves to start his own business. It's like (sighs) Suze and Luke both come from money. So him chastising her, I, I loved the dialogue on her end, but I was also like, you are a, a legacy socialite. Like there's no, yeah. like, I don't know. So it was, it, it really only started to get um, to me, like more again, like into more quotes that I think were really relevant. And again, like her answer to why do you shop was perfect. But um, 
she goes and she's talking to her parents and John Goodman, her father, says, your mother and I think that if the American economy can be billions of dollars in debt and still survive, so can you. Which I'm like, did they add that line after the recession? Yeah, they they had to have added that in there to be like, see, we're not completely tone deaf. We know what's happening in the world. (laughs) And then he reveals that the RV that they bought is $13,000, which now... Okay, so I wrote, did anyone check these prices? So you're telling me they say, they go, (laughs) we spent our entire life savings on this RV. And that was only $13,000. And then the RV, like they'll sell it and it won't even be enough to cover her debt. Like this, these numbers, you're telling me $13,000 was their entire life savings, which like, okay, maybe. And then they spent it on an RV and the RV cost $13,000. I don't think an RV costs $13,000. Like there was just. Yeah, there's no way. Even then. No, I don't know where these numbers came from, but they are. It's like a, it's like a person who's never had to buy anything wrote this. Uh, what does a banana cost? Michael, $10? $10. Like truly. So then uh, this was very relatable to me. She's given a column at Alette yes. to push clothes on credit cards to, to say, you know, you need to buy things on credit cards. Um, and she finds it immoral. And she goes to uh, Luke and she's like, I'm asking if I'm a good investment. Then she goes back to Shopaholics Anonymous. Finally, we're at the almost at the end of the film. And finally, she's going to sell yes. her stuff. Um, so I'm I'm so happy that like we get to this place because, you know, I mentioned earlier that, um, there are very few things that the the movie actually does well. Um, and one of them is serving as like a very high level warning of like the type of sacrifices that would likely need to be made. Um, and the repercussions or impacts on our, our personal relationships. Right. So like, she she has trouble in her relationship with Luke. She has trouble with her relationship with Susie. It does damage, you know, to her friendships. Uh, her parents are in the position where they're making personal, like large personal sacrifices, you know, for her. Um, and then she then has to go through a, a somewhat yeah. somewhat difficult exercise of finally selling off and, and and separating with these things that she she holds dear to her in order to rectify the situation. So. There is a little bit of she needs to dig herself out of this. So that is a lesson. Like, it is possible. And, you know, when I was thinking about other similar characters, you know, like, where else have we seen the Becky Bloomwood in media? And I think back to, like, Cher Horowitz when I was a kid and I was watching Clueless. And um, another journalist Uh that lives in New York City, Carrie Bradshaw, who is standing there trying to buy designer shoes with an Amex that gets cut in half. And we never, ever see like the real life ramifications of her behavior. I'm glad that there was at least this message where it's like, yeah, this is an uncomfortable situation. And um, she is capable of getting herself out of it, of like rectifying and, and you know, kind of like correcting course to an extent. And, um, but not without some damage being done in your personal life. Like, you know, credit card debt, whether you're in it because, um, you know, there is mental illness and there, there's like a, a legitimate addiction problem or, 
Um, you're being a little bit frivolous or like most Americans, you're just in debt because shit is expensive and you're having trouble like covering, like putting food on the table and, and doing what you need to do. There are ways that if you have resources available that you can like get yourself out of it, but it will have um, repercussions in your personal life. There will be financial stress. There will be anxiety. It has the potential to damage relationships. The number one uh, reason, or I don't know if this is still yeah. accurate, but the last I saw the data, the number one reason for divorce um, was over money. Yeah. So again, it, the the he buys the scarf during her um, sale of everything, and uh, then it ends with her kissing Hugh Dancy, and um, she looks at some shoes, and a mannequin winks at her. Uh, one of the last things that I have written here is that. Um, I think on Rotten Tomatoes or one of the the consensus about this film was uh, this middling romantic comedy underutilizes a talented cast and more importantly to me delivers muddled messages on materialism and conspicuous consumption. So that is besides the point to me because I think what I want to end on and what I want to talk about with you is the, the mental illness aspect of it all. Like this is a legitimate like it's it's a comedy. I understand that. But this is like a legitimate mental health crisis that I think could be helped with systemic change. Like this is something where, you know, obviously she learns a quote unquote lesson at the end, but it is very um, like a lot of media. It is it is couched in individualism. She did this to herself. She needs to get out of this herself. Even like during the 2008 recession, people were still sort of blaming each other. Um, and now I think in 2022, we have like a bit more uh, wider knowledge to understand that, you know, a lot of these things are not going to be uh, fixed by individuals becoming wealthy. Although, you know, we'll have uh, inevitably a woman or a person of color come on the show and say, my my point is I want to get uh, women or people of color rich. If there's more rich women or people of color, then this will be better. And then the flip side is that we have other people on this show, women, people of color, and any, you know, the types of people that we have as guests on this show who will say this is systemic. You cannot fix this by individually making people better with money. And I I fall in the middle. I don't want to try to make anybody rich. I want to try to make sure that people have enough to live and to maybe help those around them. That's all that I think is is uh, achievable. And then while doing that, also handling systemic issues. For instance, like you, you know, you were talking about better mental health care. Uh, what kind of, you know, universal health insurance do we have available to people? How do we yeah. view the quote aholics, right? How do we view people who take drugs or how do we view people who have alcohol abuse issues or even myself, you know, I'm is it is it that I'm a shopaholic or is it that I have trauma associated with money or that I have manic episodes? And a lot of people when I wrote my bipolar uh chapter for my book, a lot of people with bipolar disorder had yeah. similar almost very similar stories. Like for some reason a lot of us fly to Paris, I don't know why. So to me it's very obviously tied directly to mental illness. And I think we we either don't take it seriously when it comes to money or we blame, victim blame. We talked a little bit about social media and we know that 
social media has Mm -hmm. huge implications on mental health, um, depending on on what any individual might be struggling with in the moment. What we don't pay as much attention to is that intersection between finances and mental health. And in so many cases, the financial behaviors are removed like that, you know, it's treated as if the relationship that you have with money is completely independent from kind of like you as an, as an individual. And uh, to your point, all of the money trauma that you have experienced up until this point in your life. And I think we need to try and do a better job of understanding that these like two things are, are very closely related, you know, us to experience physical and mental illness, but it moves in both directions and we can't try to solve part of the equation. Um, I can't, you know, address like when this is going to be solved or how it's going, you know, to improve. What I can speak, you know, knowledgeably about is the way that the um, financial planning industry is shifting. Financial psychology is becoming a much larger part of the educational requirements for someone to become a certified financial planner or a qualified advisor. So uh, there has been significant recognition, not only of kind of just like consumer behavior and um, financial psychology and you know, the best ways to to help people are really to understand them as a, as a person and the different money personalities that they might have and how to most affect like any other therapist would like understand an individual in the be- most effective ways to work with them. So from an industry perspective, we are seeing uh, a huge emphasis and investment in uh, financial psychology. I'm happy to see that there are very like qualified advisors that are required to have this additional training and education. There's also um, an increasing popularity uh, financial therapists. So these are like licensed therapists that are trained exclusively um, to deal with financial trauma and to actually address these exact types of issues because we again we don't want to operate in like independently like let's address like your budgeting um shortfalls and then you know separately you can go see right. a therapist to talk about other things these are are related to one another and there can be a person that can help you navigate that ongoing relationship that will continue for the rest of your life uh so that is very encouraging to me that the industry is is making some changes. It's really important, of course, that you're only seeking out education, advice, and guidance from those qualified individuals because there's always going to continue to be people who are not remotely qualified to give advice who are on you know Instagram or TikTok or have a blog. So we do need like a little bit of, of due diligence to make sure that we're going to the right people. But the good news is um, the right people are far better equipped to help with these types of issues than historically they have been. 
Thank you so much for being our guest. Where can people find you and more about you? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the the place where you'll likely find me, Lauren Anastasio. I am on Twitter, but I'm more of an observer than anything else. Your listeners are welcome to learn more about Stash at Stash.com. We are also offering all of your listeners $25 to invest if they're interested in learning a little bit more about the company or starting to build wealth. Um, my content is uh, very frequently available on Stash's social media as well. Um, and on that note, I do just want to endorse, please, please, please strongly curate your social media, blocking out um, those people who either just have bad advice or just don't give you the good vibes that you deserve. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you again for having me. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Please listen to the show the day it drops so we can get on the charts and spread the word. You can write in at GabbyIsBadWithMoney at gmail.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 844-474-4040. You can also leave me a voice memo to my email if you prefer. I'm on Instagram, Discord, TikTok, and Patreon. All of the links will be in the description below. You can also leave a five-star Apple review if you'd like. And stay tuned for some upcoming episodes about the cost of transition, a really moving interview about abortion that we did that I'm so excited for you all to hear because it was so special. And uh, more breakdowns and takedowns. Okay, love you. Bye. Done.